16 through 30. The title is Jesus is Rejected at Nazareth. You know, one of the things I love about my job is that I, I literally am paid to dive into the scriptures. It's kind of nice. And, um, and I, I love looking at a text. This week I, I read the text like two, three times and I'm like, what am I going to teach from? Like, I was just kind of like, this should be really interesting for the junior high kid and the high school kid. Like, what has to do with their life where they're at? And then just, Lord opened up the floodgates. So I really like kind of where he's led this week. But it's really interesting how you do that. I say all that to not, like, pat my back like, I figured out something. But there's a lot of times we look at Scripture and we're like, this clearly has nothing in it for me. Next. And we go to the next thing without opening a commentary, without... You know, diving into the footnotes um, of our Bibles or, you know, looking at the cross references that are marked in most of the Bibles that we own. There is a floodgate of stuff that is available for us as we look at text. And this is one that I really enjoyed uh, diving into this morning. Oh, not this morning. I did not write it this morning, but earlier this week. So this is what it starts with. Jesus rejected at Nazareth and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind. He set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. When we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut, up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Father God, as we dive into the text today, we can look at some of these texts and just wonder, why did you include that story? Um, Of all the... Books that could have been read according, uh, written according to John. Why is this story made important? Why is this story brought to the forefront, especially at the beginning of his own ministry? Why do you give this special attention? Lord, as we dive into this today, uh, may we learn something about how the scripture speaks to us and how it pierces our heart. In your son's name, amen. If you were here two weeks ago, we covered John the Baptist's prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This was his purpose. And similarly, it is our purpose to point others to the king. The passage ended with the spirit descending upon the Lord and the official beginning of his ministry. In between this week and last week, 
Uh, Jesus went into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan. So it's the part of Luke that we're not covering. That passage records Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and starts with the phrase in verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So far, if you look at just those two stories, the Spirit of the Lord has descended upon Jesus, has filled him, and has led him. And now as Jesus returns home, he opens the scroll of the book of Isaiah and reads the Spirit. There it is again. Of the Lord is upon me. You can underline me. You can underline all the me's in that section if you want. Clearly it's important. He's talking about someone, namely me, him. For the reader of this book, whether it's the first century or the 21st century, it should be made clear that Christ is the clear communion with God by the Spirit. At this point, He is, the Spirit has descended, the Spirit has filled Him, the Spirit has led, and now the, He's referring to an old scroll written 700 years prior, where He is referred to as the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Today in this passage, He is led to His hometown. And there are two things I want us to pull from this passage. I know I'm a bad Presbyterian. I'm only giving you two things. Okay, And that is, one, the Spirit speaks, and two, the Spirit pierces. When Jesus opens the scroll of Isaiah, he opens to chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. If you want to jump there with me right now, you can. That's Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 and 2. So I'll read it for you who's not. So this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. Sound familiar? Okay. To bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Let us notice several things. Christ is taking this passage of Isaiah, written over 700 years prior, and referring to the pronoun me in the passage as referring to himself. That's going to look blasphemous, is it not, to a Jewish culture. Is he saying that he is the embodiment of the Spirit of the Lord? The Spirit of the Lord is upon him? Okay. He is speaking as if he is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the one through whom the Spirit will speak. To speak what is particular to speak what in particular? What is he speaking? Good news to the poor. That is what he's speaking about. So who are the poor? I had a great conversation with Patrick about this on Tuesday. Taliansich, not your dad. Um, but I had a great who is the poor? You know, when we think of the poor, we live in the first world. You know, you, even as high schoolers and middle schoolers probably make more money than 98% of the world just in your allowance. Right? You have a, especially those who work. I know anyone who works makes more than 90% of the world. You guys probably are in the top 50, 70% just with your allowance alone. Most people, the vast majority of the world lives on less than $2 a day. Okay? So when we think living in the first world of the poor, we think of strictly the economically poor. Okay? What do I mean by economically? One of the junior high kids tell me, what, what, is the, what does the big word economically mean? Money. Money. Thank you. It means money. So when we think of the poor, we think of someone in the low economic ladder. These are the poor in our minds, but not, this is not the poor in the first century. And I think they have it right. I think we limit our use of the term poor, at least at the surface level, to economic stagnant individuals. The term 
poor refers to anyone outside the social religious hierarchy. Anyone outside the social religious hierarchy is considered poor. Yes, those who are economically poor, those who are poor in health, those who are Gentiles, they're not of the riches of God's people like us Jews, and therefore the poor, and therefore being the poor had to refer to their birthright as Gentiles, women who were seen as second class citizens, they were considered among the poor in this context, debtors, prisoners, people of low status of work, those were considered the poor. Jesus came to those who were outside the grain, outside those who made up the important people, because to Jesus, all people are important. Not just the elites, not just those with power, not just those who are considered rich in this life. The poor had meaning too. And in that culture, to have value as someone who is poor was a game changer. To be poor and considered someone of worth flips the script on that culture. Do you get that? He's reading this and be like, I'm coming for the poor. This is a culture, especially the Romans, they're obsessed with power. Everything the Romans do is a power play. And that Hellenistic attitude had bled over into the Jewish lifestyle. So if you weren't part of the right Pharisaical or Sadducees or Essenes or whatever other Jewish group, you were to be looked down upon or considered less than or considered poor. And you were clearly of much higher standing. And we do this all the time in our culture, do we not? There's always people that we consider less than our value. But those are exactly the people that Christ came to, is the poor, the impoverished, those who are not of the elite. It flips the script. In our culture, we choose not to see ourselves as poor. Is that right? We, we literally make a thought, well, we're not poor. We wouldn't be considered among them. We would rather see ourselves as if we have it all together. I mean, that's Frisco. We have one of the highest like incomes in the country, but we also have some of the highest debt in the country and the highest divorce rates when it comes to our culture. Because we just want to make it look like we have it all together. But when we're honest, we are on the outside of many of the world's social circles. But we have a promise that Jesus came for us too. It's okay for us to consider ourselves poor. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. What's the first blessing that Jesus gives? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Who are of low standing, who are humble in the way they approach the Lord, who have been humbled by this world. And that's how they approach it. They're poor. But what good news does Jesus, under the work of Spirit, bring to the poor? Okay, good, you've called us poor. I'm glad you've come for us, Jesus. What do you got to offer? Literally, liberty. That's what he brings. Liberty. It's a word found twice as Jesus speaks from Isaiah. And notice how Jesus speaks to what Isaiah means when he speaks of liberty. For those of you who don't, don't know what liberty means, there's a great chain and chain call, shot song called There is Liberty. It's great. So listen to it on Spotify if you want later. I have to listen to your boule stuff. You give a, you give a strong argument. Um, but there is liberty. There is liberty. That means freedom. That's freedom. Both Jesus and Isaiah 
bring liberty to the captives. They bring freedom to the captives. But Isaiah speaks in the next verse about opening the prison to those who are bound. Jesus, instead of saying that exact thing, thing, restates it, saying that it is not just a literal prison that many find themselves in, but the prison of their poverty. And not just the economic poverty. Remember, this is the social religious poverty. Again, we live in America where, according to the American dream, you can hope to move out of your social status and climb the ladder, so to speak. Think about it. You are told from a very young age, you can do anything you want to do. You just got to set your mind to it and follow your passion. You can be president of the United States. Anyone can. Not Mexican. <laughs> no, I can't. But we're told that. We live in a culture where moving up the ladder is not only natural, but it's in some ways expected. Do you see that? And in Israel here, that's not. There was no dream. You were who you were. There was little to no chance to make a better life. You were imprisoned in your poverty. Again, not economic, but the social religious poverty. And that prison, Christ will free them from. And liberty phrases uh, booked how he frees them from that poverty. By giving sight to the blind. So let's review. The Spirit of the Lord speaks through the Lord Jesus. The prophecy fulfillment stands in front of the people of the synagogue. He promises freedom for the poor, for those outsiders to become insiders, by allowing them to see what others are blind to. That's what he's brought us to so far. Again, the Spirit of the Lord speaks to Jesus, the Lord. The prophecy fulfillment stands at the front of the people of the synagogue. He promises freedom for the poor, for the outsiders to become insiders, by allowing them to see what others are blind to. That's what he promises. That's how you're going to be out of this poverty. By allowing them to see Christ. This will bring about the Lord's favor in verse 19. And what do we do about the Lord's favor? So so what do we mean about the Lord's favor? Sorry, my dictionary and my sight is so off today. I apologize. It's been a long weekend. So what do I mean about the Lord's favor? The year of the Lord's favor refers to the year of Jubilee. Now, Americans don't know what the year of Jubilee is. So let's look at Leviticus 25, 8 through 12. Turn there with me. Leviticus 25, 8 through 12. Old Testament. Leviticus 25, 8 through 12. Keep a finger on this first so you can flip right back the, the one you were just on. So let me read it. Leviticus 25, 8 through 12. You shall count seven weeks of years. Seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of the year shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound with a loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. And on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all the land. And you shall consecrate the fifteenth year and proclaim what? Liberty. There's that word again. And throughout the land to all its inhabitants, it shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. It shall be neither, it shall, in it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undress vines. For this is a jubilee. It shall be a holy to you. You may eat the produce of the fields. Just don't work it, just go eat it. 
Jubilee involves enjoying the fruit of the harvest that has been promised. That's what it involves. Slaves and prisoners during the Jubilee year are those included to those who should return to their property. They literally, in the year of Jubilee, according to Jewish custom, would be set free. Given liberty. Debts, according to the Hebrew custom, would be forgiven in the year of Jubilee. See how this is happening? We get to enjoy the fruits. We're free from the shackles that have bound us. And all our debts are forgiven. Kind of sounds like the gospel, right? Sounds a lot like Christ, doesn't it? Calling us to enjoy the fruits that have been given to us. Freeing us from our slavery to social status. And the prison of our sin and position. The debt of sin would be paid by the one who grants this jubilee. And it pierces the hearts of those who are listening. And he rolled up the scroll. We're back in Luke. And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. This is an aside up until like several hundred years after Jesus. The teachers always sat and everyone else in the audience stood. Now we've switched it. Everyone chills out and sits down and the preacher's got to stand up behind a podium. We've inverted it. But before, the teacher sat and everyone stood at attention. So that's why he sits down. He's not being a lazy teacher. Okay? And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? That's not that's how they're saying it. Realize that. They're not saying, Is that just Joseph's son? Like they're not being some like cranky old woman. Like, isn't this Joseph? He's one of us. He's one. I know where he lives. He went to my high school. Like, they're including him, and they're excited about it. As they stood there listening to Jesus, they were transfixed on his words. It was typical for the teacher to sit. So they marveled at his words. And not only that, they called him their own. Is this not Joe's? This is Joe's. It's Joe's boy. And this is where it pierces our hearts. Ah, what a wise teacher. And he is ours. That's what they thought. The passage continues. And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Now, many times throughout the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels, it's revealed that Jesus knows what his audience is thinking. It's like he's... God. The Spirit of the God has pierced their heart and he knows their motives. Jesus is omnipotent. And what does physician heal yourself mean? Are they considering Jesus a doctor? Not only is he a good speaker, I went to him on Monday for a checkup. No, that's not what he means by physician heal yourself. It's a colloquialism or something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a phrase of the day. So what does physician heal yourself mean? Physician heal yourself is a well-known phrase of antiquities that says this. It says this. So pay attention, voice. This is what it means. Surely, what you have done for others, you will do for your own household. We deserve what you can give us. Because we are your own. That's what it's saying. Physician, heal yourself. Meaning, your people, remember, you're ours. This is Joe's boy. We heard what you did down at Capernaum. We want some of that too. The miracles that you've heard about, we deserve those too. We are your own. But they did not hear the words of Isaiah properly. 
What did he just said? Jesus came to save those who were poor, oppressed, shackled. Those who were in their culture didn't deserve it. Like those in Capernaum. He didn't come to save those who thought they did deserve it. Those who were proud or become proud. Look at the two examples he gives. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But truth I tell you this, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. She was poor. Again, not necessarily in an economic sense, but what we're talking about in reference to is poverty earlier. She was someone who was without, namely a husband, not a, uh, without a sense of safety, without a family to protect her. She was a widow. And most importantly, she was a Gentile, not a Jew. Notice where he went. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Jew. Oh, no, wait, what? The Syrian. Again, who did Elisha heal? Not the Jew, but the Syrian. The Gentile. The one who didn't deserve it according to Jewish custom. But Jesus is going to break those boundaries. He's going to set the captives free. But the people of his hometown only want freedom for themselves. They deserve it, they think. And since he won't give it to them, might as well kill him. I think of the patriot Patrick Henry's quote here. Give me liberty or give me death as I read this passage. Now, it's definitely not a one-to-one correspondence if you're following along. Because I think his hometown is saying here, give us liberty or we will give you death. It's all about their response to Jesus. The Spirit has pierced their hearts and has revealed that they are rich in themselves and not poor in spirit. Even the way they go about killing Jesus isn't in line with deserving freedom. They try to throw him off a cliff. That's not a Jewish form of execution. That's a Roman form of execution. So they're not even following their own customs. They won't even stone him. Let's just chuck him off this. The Romans do it all the time. As for you in this room, I'm going to give you three questions that I want you to dwell on. Here are three questions, three takeaways. And the first one is this. Do you feel like you deserve Jesus? Do you feel like you deserve Jesus? If you are saved, then you understand you don't. If you're saved, if you are regenerate in this room, that when I ask that question, you know the answer. But if you feel like it's his job to save you, then you are far from him. And you need to humble yourself. That is your first step to living a kingdom life. To approach him humbly, not as physician. Heal yourself. I'm one of yours. I went to high school with you. Two. This one I didn't like. You know, when I don't like it, that means I'm convicted. And that is, do you live in a state of the year of Jubilee? Do you live in a state of the year of Jubilee? Christ promised to bring freedom. Do you live like you're free from sin? Free from social, religious, or economic standing? Or do you define yourself by the shackles the culture puts around you? Are you weighted down by the culture's chains of identity? Christ has come to set you free from those. Let him loosen your restraints 
and live in Jubilee. We're going to touch on this a little bit more in transformation groups. But you approach life with joy is really what it comes to at the end of the day. Is there a joy that recedes from you? Proceeds, not receipts. Proceeds. It should both. But that proceeds from you. Do people consider you a joyful person? And if they don't, what is limiting you? Because we are in a year of jubilee. Christ has come. Three. Don't like this one either. Do you realize that the same spirit that moved Christ to action lives in you? Do you realize that the same spirit that moved Christ to action lives in you? Or to simply quote scripture. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We talked about it at the very beginning. The, The spirit of the Lord fell upon Jesus during his baptism. And then it filled him and it led him. Do you realize that if you are a Christian, that same spirit resides in you? That same exact spirit. To what end did you receive the spirit? Seems a lot like what Christ was called in the book of Isaiah. Here are the words of Paul in Romans. This is Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit was not given you to slavery, but freedom to cry to God as a child does his father. It has given you intimacy. It has given you the riches of a king. Leave the poverty we play in and come to the king this day. Leave the poverty that we cling to and realize that the same Spirit that led the Lord lives inside of you. It's powerful.